we're um, going to be um, dealing this morning with uh, a rather tough issue. We've been talking about prayer and uh, the variables that the Scripture reveals affect prayer, the principles of prayer. Uh, we've seen that uh, persistence is necessary for prayer to be effective and fasting and faith and righteousness and numbers. These are all factors that the Bible gives us, principles that affect um, the, the, the power of prayer in the war zone in which we live. And I would like to be able to stand up here today. Oh, by the way, if you're visiting, my name is Greg Boyd, and I'm the senior pastor here. We're supposed to always introduce that, and I never remember to do that. Sorry. I'm Greg, and don't call me Reverend. I don't reverberate, so drop the REV. I wish I could say that, you know, if you just do the principles, the principles of powerful prayer, if you just do those, you're guaranteed, folks, to have a... The outcome of what you're praying for. And I wish I could stand up here and say, you know what? Never has it happened that someone hasn't prayed with faith and prayed with numbers and prayed with righteousness and their prayer has not been answered. That'd really sell well. That really be, would be preachable. We could really have a good rah-rah service on that one. But the reality of the situation, as all of us know when we're honest with ourselves, is that it doesn't always turn out that way. People... Do the variables. They live the principles. They pray the principles. And sometimes, in fact, sometimes it feels like most of the time we don't see the prayer being answered. And that's frustrating. And the question I want to ask this morning, I want to deal with this head on, is why is that? Why is prayer, even prayer that is accompanied by the principles of Scripture, often not answered? Or at least it doesn't look answered. In fact, we could expand this to include just this question. Why does life seem so doggone, frustratingly arbitrary? You know, you, you have uh, David wondered about it. Why do the, the wicked prosper and why do the righteous suffer? This is the whole problem of evil. There doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason to the fortune or misfortune that comes people's ways or to the prayers that get answered or don't answer. You pray for a... Someone sprained ankle to get better and it gets better. You pray for someone who's dying of cancer and they die. And it's like, why? Maybe you even did the variables with the cancer, but you didn't do the principles with the, the sprained ankle, but the sprained ankle gets healed and the other one doesn't. Why? Why is life so arbitrary? Is God really that arbitrary? This is a tough issue. It's a tough issue and I'm, we're going to be chewing on it here this morning. Uh, several things about this. Number one, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on for this one. Uh, we need to deal with tough issues. There is sort of an uh, a idea out there that uh, if you're teaching and preaching, you shouldn't deal with tough stuff. You shouldn't ever deal with theology. Just keep it light. Keep it practical. Keep it upbeat. Because that's what people like. And see, when, you, when, when, when that's all that you preach, and I believe in being upbeat, I'm basically an upbeat kind of a person, but if, if that's all you ever talk about is the nice stuff, the fun stuff, the sweet stuff, the ear-tickling stuff, you end up with sort of a carnival Christianity light. You know, and every service turns into a pep rally. But the job of preaching and the job of teaching is not to lead a pep rally. It's not to just kind of give a, uh, who's that guy on Saturday Night Live, John Candy or John Dandy or John, you know, the, the deep thoughts, where you just give these you know, like little, little helpful thoughts of wisdom. A penny saved is a penny earned or whatever. You know, it's, uh, we've got to deal with reality, amen. And we've got to deal with the Word of God. And sometimes it, life is tough and sometimes the Word of God is tough. And we need to chew on that. So we're going to deal with this, this, tough, this tough issue. A lot of times non-Christians have, uh, they look at, at, at uh, some Christians and some churches and they, and they think, you know, what's with these people? I'm glad they're all so positive, but their head is stuck in the sand. They don't deal with reality. They, they, there's no depth to it. It feels shallow to them. And that ought never to be. Sometimes preachers are afraid uh, of, of dealing with tough issues because they, they just sort of assume that people can't think it. And I think, you know, we can assume, I, I, I work on the assumption that God called us, He gave us a brain, and we're supposed to worship Him with our brain. Amen? Love the Lord God, not God, with all your mind. The way you worship God with your mind is by using it. And so we go ahead and talk about tough stuff. It's not always easy, but it's very, very necessary. Secondly, because this is a tough issue, it's one that I've been dealing with for, for, for years, decades actually, and I, I'm still in process on it. I'm still thinking it through. I'm still chewing on it. And for that reason, we've got to give each other space. And we're processing this stuff. Life sometimes is tough. There are tough questions. 
And uh, we got to be okay with uh, just seeing things a little bit from different perspectives. So even as I'm, I'm preaching this, uh, this has been the result of a lot of struggling and reading and praying that I have done. Uh, it may not be where you're at. Take it. Let it challenge you. Chew on it. Uh, ask God about it. Check it out with the Word of God. But the Bible says to test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. But we also got to be gracious and give each other space on this whole thing. Why does life seem so arbitrary? And the answer to prayer sometimes seems so arbitrary. There are two very simple answers that you can find out there. One simply says, oh, it's all God's will. It's all God's will. Yeah, you know, your, your, your kid uh, got killed in a car accident. It must have been God's will. Even though you prayed for safety, got killed. Well, it just must be God's will. That's a nice, simple solution. And people generally like things to be simple. So it sells well. Here's another uh, solution that sells well. Well, no, God's will is to protect your child. He's not for that kind of stuff. So if your child got killed in a car accident or something, it must be because of some sin in your life or because you lack faith or you didn't pray enough or you didn't have the numbers. And then we end up blaming the person. Two common answers. You either blame God or blame the person. What I want to su- suggest, I want to present this morning, is a third alternative, uh, which is not so simple, but I think it's very, very biblical. It comes right out of a book of Bible that, as I read it, was written precisely to dispel those two simplistic answers. It's a study of the book of Job. We're going to dive into it. We're basically going to... First service, I, I went 50 minutes. I, I, I got I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to. Amen. I'm going to try to shrink this one a little bit. But we're basically going to study the whole book of Job. It is the most profound, and in some ways the most challenging and difficult. Certainly one of the most nuanced books in history. One of the greatest books of the Bible is just an incredible book, and we're going to try to get through this. But you're going to have to keep your thinking caps on as we do it. You need about 20 people on this side of the auditorium to be praying as I'm preaching. Would you just raise your hand if you'll say, okay, I'll be interceding for you. A couple more, a couple more. Okay, good. I need some people in the middle here. Okay, and I need some people over here. Would you just say, yeah, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Uh, you can listen to the message, but just be sprinkling it in that God would use it to minister to people uh, where they're at. What I know for real is this. There are people in this congregation right now that are hearing me for whom this is not an academic question. And it shouldn't be a merely academic question for any of us. Uh, This is life and death stuff for some people. This is serious stuff. And there are people who have had their faith crash on the rocks of reality because of the simplistic theology they held. And, uh, and they're trying to reconstruct that. So we need to pray that God will use this to minister to people, to give encouragement, to give faith, to give strength, uh, to, to equip to be uh, warriors in the war zone that He's called us to be. So let's pray for a moment. Father, I'm just asking God that as we're dealing with this tough stuff, I thank you, God, for a context in which we can ask questions out loud uh, and, and deal with your word and, and struggle with it, Father. I pray, God, that you'd use it, Lord. Uh, to, to just build your kingdom here, Lord, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, in our families. I pray, God, especially for those, Lord, who have uh, really maybe put all their trust in, in an answer that has not panned out, and now they're in a state of confusion, Lord. I pray that this would uh, help clarify things, Lord, and bring congruity between our mind and our heart, Lord. We want to worship you with all of our heart and also with all of our mind. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. The book of Job, this is titling this message, Lessons from the Book of Job, Learning How to Pray in an Incomprehensibly Complex War Zone. The Book of Job, most of you know uh, something about the Book of Job. It's an epic poem. That's that's its genre. It's always important to interpret uh, books of the Bible according to their genre, according to the type of literature it is. This is an epic poem. That's why the people in the Book of Job, if you've ever read it, they speak more like Shakespeare than they do uh, people in, in real life because it, it's, it, it's all a poem, an inspired poem that reveals some profound truths uh, about the world. In the beginning of this epic poem, in the beginning of the prologue, uh, what you have is this. Uh, God's holding a meeting in heaven. There's a, a court up there, and uh, he's having a conference, and an uninvited guest shows up. His name is Satan in Hebrew, which means adversary. This is, this is Satan. He shows up here. He wasn't invited. In fact, God says, where have you been? He says, well, I'm roaming, you know, the earth and, you know, seeking whom I, whom I may devour, tells us in First Peter. But he was kind of roaming around the earth. But the point is that he wasn't invited there. He shows up. And that's part of the point of the story. Uh, he challenges God's authority, challenges God's wisdom, challenges God's providence, basically accuses God of this. Uh, you know, people just serve you because of all the benefits, the goodies you throw their way. Take away their goodies, they won't serve you. 
And so God's character is at stake. His character is being assailed here. His wisdom is being assailed. A dialogue ensues, and the result of the whole thing is that something like a wager is made, and Job's life is in the balance. Job was the most righteous man on the earth, it says, and his life gets caught in this uh, verbal warfare that's going on in the heavenly realms. Now remember, we're dealing with an epic poem here, so you can't press this like for, for metaphysical details. Is this, you know, what you would have seen if you would have had a camera up there or something like that. Uh, the point of the prologue is this. Satan is able to then afflict Job. And he goes through this suffering. And the point of the, the, the prologue is, is to tell the reader that things go on in the heavenly realm that affect what happens here on earth. And there are things that we don't know about. The characters in the book of Job never learn about this dialogue. They never do, even at the end. They never learn about the dialogue between God and Satan. They never really know why what happens to Job happens to Job. And that's the point. The reader does know it because the author told you the, the characters don't. Because the point of the book of Job we're going to see is to reveal the vast ignorance of all the players in this, in this book. Both Job and his friends. There's two theologies that this book is written to refute. And they're the two theologies I just gave you. The two most popular theologies throughout history. The book is intended to expose the oversimplicity of Job's view in which God is causing everything. And, and, and therefore Job thinks unjustly, and then to expose this, the, the oversimplicity, the simplistic nature of Job's friends' theology. The whole book, up until the last four chapters, are, is a dialogue between Job and his friends. And I encourage you to read it. It's, 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 it's so profound. Let me briefly touch on both of these theology, theologies. Job's view of God is this. We, we, we mentioned this last week. You have people sometimes quoting at funerals, Tragic funerals of kids who got murdered, they quote Job when Job says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, as though God somehow orchestrated the murder. But see, Job throughout the book of Job is saying a lot of things that nobody would agree with. For example, he says this, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. He laughs. When innocent people suffer, God's up there laughing. Ha 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 ha! Do you think that that's true? The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the eyes of its judges. He blinds them. Why? So they, that's why they don't judge justly. Job's accusing God of this. If it is not he, who then is it? From the, sitting, from, from the city, the dying groan, and the throat of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayers. Last week I gave a number of other expressions of Job. This is a guy. He's righteous. His heart is in the right place. God, in fact, compliments him for, for having a, a right heart. But his head is screwed up. And if you had just lost your family and all that you have, all you've ever worked for, your reputation and everything else, and if your wife had just told you, curse God and die, you'd be despairing too. So he expresses his, his confusion, his despair. And his view of God is that um, uh, God causes everything. Now the point of the book of Job is to, is to expose this, this theology as being, being erroneous. This is not... It's not true that God mocks the innocent, uh, that God doesn't answer the prayers of, of people who are groaning in the street. Though it appears that way. It certainly appeared that way to Job. Some people get a little bit confused, I think, uh, because of one verse in the end of the book of Job, Job chapter 42, verse 11, where it says that Job's friends came to console him after this was all done because of all the distress that the Lord brought on him. And so they think, well, then the book must be saying that, in fact, God does cause all evil. Now, see, if you accept that conclusion, I think we've got to be careful here. Okay, keep your thinking caps on. If that's true, that the Lord did all this, then Job was right. And God must mock the innocent and not hear the prayers of those in the street. But I don't think any of us want to agree with that. Secondly, you've got to read, understand that verse in the context of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's emphasis is on God as creator because the Jews are the only ones who believe that there's one God who created the world. So they always emphasize whatever happens, it's under God's jurisdiction, and in that sense, he brings all things about. It doesn't mean he causes all things. But they want to emphasize that if, if, if an angel or, or if a human being does a free act that is evil, in one sense, God brought that about because he created the person. So the responsibility for that act falls on the person who did it, not on God who created the person. You see, you see the emphasis? So you've got to be careful about reading uh, too much into this language. A third point about that is this. You've got to read that verse in the light of the prologue, which clearly says that it was Satan, not God, who brought these evils on Job. Now, God created Satan and allowed him to do this, and in that indirect sense, 
brought about the distress, but it, it, the, the responsibility for it ultimately falls on Satan. You also have to read this verse in the light of Jesus' ministry, because Jesus confronted a lot of people who were in Job's situation, a lot of people who were lepers and, and, and whatnot, who were exactly where Job was at. And never once does Jesus ever suggest that this was God's will, that oh, God's causing this here. Rather, he diagnoses it as, it as being the result of a fallen world that's under bondage to the enemy. And he reveals what God's will is by coming against this stuff. And Jesus has to be the center of our faith in all things. So you need to interpret that verse in the light of, of uh, Jesus' ministry. The final thing, and maybe the most decisive thing, is this. Job himself repents of his theology. He says, I didn't know what I was talking about. Throughout the book of Job, he's saying these things about God causing all of his suffering. But in the end, he says, I, I didn't know what I was saying. Here's what he says in, in, in uh, chapter 42. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. I didn't know what I was talking about, Job says. I despise myself. I repent. He repents of his theology. Uh, I repent in dust and ashes. So one of the points of the book of Job is to suggest that Job's theology, while his heart was pious, uh, his theology was too simplistic. It was off base. The book of Job also exposes the error of, Job, the, the, the error of Job's friend's theology. Uh, Job's friends initially do the right thing. When Job's uh, you know, afflicted, they come and they sit in silence. They're just quiet. And that's what they, you should do when a person's in the middle of extreme grief. But then Job starts to express his pain, such as we saw there. And see, if the, if the friends of Job were wise, they would have just let him vent. You, that's not the time to correct anyone's theology. Unfortunately, they start jumping in with all of their little sayings and pieces of wisdom. What's amazing, if you, if you read the book of Job, I encourage you to read it sometime beginning to end in one sitting. It'll take you an hour or two, but, and, and just read it slowly and digest it. But what's amazing, folks, is how the, 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 the theology of Job's friends sounds so evangelical to modern people. It's what a lot of Christians actually believe, even though there's a whole book of the Bible written to refute this theology. Here's some of the things that the friends say. They also assume that God causes everything, but since God is all holy, they believe, and God is all just, they conclude that what's happening to Job must be what he deserves. Job must have sin in his life, uh, or something of the sort. So here's some of the things that they say. Eliphaz, says, Eliphaz, who is the leader of the friends, says this. Think now, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Now, I'm wondering where Eliphaz has his head, because if you look around the world with any kind of realistic eyes and don't go into some kind of self-induced denial, you'll see that innocent perish all the time. Children get kidnapped. We've got abortions going on all over in this country. Don't tell me that the innocent never perish. But see, what Eliphaz is doing here is he's got a theology where he doesn't want to believe that the innocent ever perish. And so he just ignores that fact, and now he indicts Job. Has he had the innocent ever perished? Uh, as I have seen... Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You get your just desserts. Job, you must have done something to deserve this. By the breath of God, the wicked perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Now listen to this. How happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. See, this is la-la land theology, and I hear it all the time. This guy just lost his kids. He just lost his health. He's got boils all over his skin. He just lost all of his property. And now they come along saying, hey, don't worry, be happy. Why, God's judging you. He's, he's just disciplining you. And if you really were a saint of God, if you really had piety, you know, if you really had enough faith, you'd be happy all the time. You'd be giving thanks for this. And all things give thanks. La, 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 la. <laughs> you know, this is absolutely barbarically cruel. You ought to be happy for this. And say, I've seen this. I've seen people try to pray demons of depression out of a, a, a woman who lost her husband a week earlier. Well, you know what? When you lose your husband, you have a right to get depressed, all right? It doesn't mean you got a demon. We have this kind of like permanent smile-faced Christianity, and we try to enforce it on one another. Mainly, mainly because our life is going well, and we wanted to keep it that way, so we construct a theology that will keep us feeling safe and secure in it. Oh, God wounds, but he also binds up. He strikes, but his hand heals. He will deliver you from six troubles. Nay, seven, no harm shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. And I can just picture Job going, yippee, because I just lost my kids. I really don't care much about future famines. Thank you very much. It gets worse. 
As destruction and famine, you, at destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the wild animals of the earth. Boy, now he's getting eloquent. He's starting to give him promises all over the place. Uh, you shall know that your tent is safe and shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. To a guy who just lost his kids. Wonderful. Thank you very much. If you just obey God enough, you can, your tent will be safe, Job. Uh, if you just obey God enough, you have a guarantee that your children will never be missing. In other words, if anyone's tent was not safe and if anyone's t- kids ever are missing, it must be their own fault. I can't picture Job getting too excited about this. You shall know that your descendants will be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. He just lost his kids. In fact, his wife just said, curse God and die, so the prospect of having any future descendants is looking a little glim right now. <laughs> Things are not going well for Job. You know, it reminds me of a, a t- TV evangelist I heard... Uh, the day after the Oklahoma bombing, when 123 children were blown apart, there's this TV evangelist saying, Oklahoma, God's got a miracle in store for you. Hallelujah. Expect great things from God. Now, I know it's, it's wonderful to expect a miracle and great things for God. But the day after your kid got blown up is probably not the right time to say it, you know? And I can just picture one of the parents saying, oh, that's a wonderful promise you have there. You know, let's, let's deal with reality, folks. Let's not put our, our fingers in our ears and go into la-la-la-la-la-la. This is what I wish was true. Life is a war zone, and, and it hurts sometimes, and we've got to deal with that. You shall come to your grave, he says in Job 5, in ripe old age as a... Sh- and now he gets Shakespearean. As the shock of grain comes up with the threshing floor in this due season. See, we have searched this out. It is true. We are wise. Uh, hear and know it for yourself. And you, you just got to say, you got to be kidding. So when God shows up, and, and, and he has three speeches in the end of the book of Job. And this is where God sets it all straight. He never, he never says that Job is right. He never says Job's friends are right. He never says, I can do whatever I want, shut up. Nor does he say uh, what happened to, to Job was, was, was the result of some sin in his life or lack of faith in his life. Like Jesus in his ministry, God doesn't indict the person who's going through pain. Jesus never once in his entire ministry suggested that what the people he was ministering to were going through was their own fault. Now maybe it was, but that wasn't the point. Maybe some of the people actually brought it on themselves. I don't know. But Jesus' only concern is this. Don't ask the questions of who's to blame. You want to see God glorified by coming against it. And so God here doesn't indict Job. I'm sure Job wasn't perfect, but he was righteous. He certainly didn't deserve what happened to him any more than anyone, anyone else does. Read uh, Luke chapter 13, where Jesus confronts us. I don't have time to turn to it right now. But there's people who were, a tower fell on a bunch of people who got killed. And they were saying, oh, God's judging them. And Jesus says explicitly, because you think that they were worse than you? No. But you ought to be thinking about your own relationship with God. Repent or you'll all perish like that. The point is, don't go around trying to read the will of God over every tra- out of every tragedy that happens in this world. When the Lord shows up, He doesn't condone the theology of Job's friends. In fact, He rebukes them. He says, Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you. That's just an ancient way of saying, I am really ticked off. <laughs> I'm ticked off at you and your two friends, for you've not spoken to me of what is right. Job's theology is invalidated, and Job's friend's theology is invalidated. Now, it doesn't mean the book of Job is nuanced. It doesn't deal with black and white. It deals with gray. And some of what Job says is true, and some of what Job's friends say is true, but the gist of their theology is erroneous. God shows up and sets the record straight. Now, here's where you really got to put your thinking cap on. And what God shows us is this. In the end, He doesn't ever give Job an answer. He doesn't give him an explanation. But he shows Job and Job's friends why they can't expect an explanation. And it's got nothing, it doesn't have everything to do with God's will or Job's faith. It has to do with several other factors. There's two things that Job, that God says in the last three chapters of the book of Job. First of all, he appeals to the vast complexity of the world. The vast complexity of the world. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job 38. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? That's interesting. God is dealing with the mystery of the problem of evil here. But he doesn't say it's a mystery of my will or a mystery of Job's will. He says it's a mystery of creation. You're dealing with a very big creation about which you know very little, Job. You weren't there when when I laid the foundations of the earth. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. On what words base is sunk? Now, throughout this book, this is the oldest book of the Bible, and so even the cosmology, the view of the world, is very ancient. So they believe that the earth was set on some pillars. And so God is dealing with people where they're at. So he says, you know, when I set the earth on those pillars that you believe uh, the earth is set on, were you there 
Were you there? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? The angels were around, but I didn't even consult with them. You weren't even around, Job. So you don't know much about the universe. You should be a little bit hesitant in terms of your thinking you know why what happens to you happened to you. Don't be accusing me of it. Have you declared the expanse of the earth, he says. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this, Job. Every year, it seems, that we exist, astronomers decide that the universe is bigger than they previously thought. Three years ago, they discovered that there's five times as many galaxies as we previously thought. The universe is an incomprehensibly big, big, very, very big place. And the trouble is we only got four or four and a half pounds of noodles between the ears, and we can't quite get our mind around it, can we now? And so what God is saying is until you can understand that, don't think you know more than you actually know. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth, the Lord asked him. In other words, do you understand the laws of physics even? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? What God is saying here is something like this. Do you have any idea of the rules that have to be set up in a creation like this? The ordinances of heaven. Uh, you know, the, the, the way things have to go. Do you have any rule, of, any understanding about how they apply here on earth? You don't, do you? Your knowledge is very limited. And so until you understand that, and you're not going to understand it in this lifetime, be careful about thinking you know exactly why things happen the way they do. We're just now, folks, beginning to, in science, uh, uh, really see how, how intricate and complex the world is. And I'm sure a hundred years from now they'll be saying the exact same thing. Whoa, they used to think they understood the complexity of the universe. Now we really know about it. There are theories out there, uh, very well documented chaos theory, for example, complex systems theory, emergent property theory. These are scientific theories, and all of them in different ways are showing us this. This is just one application of the Lord's statement. Do you know the rules of, of uh, uh, the heavens, the ordinances of the heavens? But we're now seeing that everything is, is indirectly connected to everything else. The smallest change some, someplace can bring about a major change in a different place. In chaos theory, they say, this is called the butterfly principle, that the flap of a butterfly on one part of the globe can several months later cause a hurricane on a different part of the globe if all the variables line up just right. See, that the world is so... Con the thing is this. It means that we can't ever know for sure why a hurricane hits where it uh, hits or why a tornado goes the way it goes because it might have been due to some dumb butterfly in Taiwan three months ago. And who can under The complexity of the universe is mind-boggling. If we apply this to what we've been saying so far about God, because He desires love, He gave, he he gave say-so to, to humans and to angels. We really have power to make decisions that have repercussions uh, in our life, in the lives of other people, and even in, in, in subsequent generations. If we, if we apply that understanding of chaos theory to free will, you begin to understand how complex the universe is. Every decision we make is like a pebble dropped in the pond and has a ripple effect. We're still suffering under the ripple effect of Adam's decision. We're still suffering under the ripple effect of Satan's decision. The world is under the ripple effect of Hitler's decision and Stalin's decision and really of every decision that's been made throughout history. Every time you make a decision, it has an impact. And those, that impact is allowed to be carried out because we have genuine say-so. It's part of our moral responsibility, which means this. The total state of affairs that we're living in right now is in part the, the result of a convergence of a multiplicity of almost infinite number of variables of decisions that have been made throughout time with the ripple effects which we are now enjoying. I like that. It's only like the scarecrow in Wizard of Oz, the hypotenuse of a triangle. Bottom line, folks, is that the world's very, very complex and we can't, we can't expect to understand it with any thorough degree of anything. Uh, until we get uh, uh, this side of, of, of life, until we get an understanding of all the ordinances, the rules, the complexity. The universe is vast. That's God's first point. Second point, just as important, not only is the universe vast beyond our comprehension, but there are forces of evil that God is up against. And this is the second thing that God appeals to in the book of Job as he's explaining to Job why he doesn't understand things. Now, if, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. God has to speak in, 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 in sort of primitive language so that they can understand. God always meets us where we're at, so He comes down to their level. When ancient people thought about evil, they didn't know much about Satan. You hardly read anything about Satan in the Old Testament. The way they thought about evil, one of the main ways was as a sea. A sea. 
They believed that the earth was set on a sea, and this, this, this sea had a, had a sort of personality to it, and it was evil. It was always trying to swallow the earth. And so they believed that God had to keep the sea at bay. And it really, it really didn't fight against God. Uh, later on, Paul expresses the same idea, that the world is engulfed uh, in evil, when he says that Satan is the principality and power of the air. They thought that way, but they didn't know about Satan, so they conceptualized it as the sea. Uh, we, we, we read this in, in uh, John 21, or in Revelations 21. Uh, this idea of the sea as a force that resists God goes throughout the whole Bible. In Revelations, you have this, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. And what's he talking about? What he's saying there is that evil is no more. Chaos is no more. That which works against God's purposes is no more. When God is communicating with Job, he appeals to the sea. So he says this to Job. Job, who, sh- who shut in the sea with doors when it bursts out of the womb? Who prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors? And said, thus far you can come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Job, what he's saying here is this. Job, can you fend off the evil that encompasses the world? You can't. That's my job, and until you walk in my shoes, don't be so quick to judge me. There's a war that is going on. Stated in, the term, in terms that Job could understand. A second thing he appeals to, as he's talking about the warfare that the creation is engulfed in, is a being called Leviathan. Now, all ancient people believed in Leviathan. Uh, it was, was basically a, a dragon, a cosmic monster that they thought was going to engulf the world. In fact, Job, in, in, in the book of Job, chapter 3, verse 8, I just thought of this. Um, Job is in such despair, he says, I wish those who conjured up Leviathan would rouse him up. And what he's saying there is that they believe that there are evil people who could call upon Leviathan to do evil, like people call, people call upon Satan. And he wanted Leviathan, Satan, to devour the world. He's saying, I wish Leviathan was here maybe, who could swallow the moon, who could you know, blacken the night or blacken the day. I wish I, I'd never been born. This guy is really in despair. So there's this creature, Leviathan. And so what God does is he speaks to Job in a way that Job can understand. It was their way of personifying Satan. And, uh, and, and uh, he wants to call Job's attention uh, to the fact that he's got a battle on his hands. So he says this, Job, he's chiding Job here, can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook or press down its tongue with a cord? Job, are you going to go fishing for Leviathan? Do you think you can handle this thing? It is the first of the great acts of God. And as we know, Lucifer was the uh, greatest of God's creations until he fell. He was given tremendous power to do uh, good and therefore has tremendous power to do evil when he turns against God. Here here he's conceptualized as Leviathan. Only its maker can approach it, and even he does it with a sword. In other words, this this isn't a game we're playing here. There's a real battle here, and even I carry a sword. Now, here's how he describes Leviathan. He describes Leviathan in the ferocious terms that all ancient people did because he wants Job to understand that this isn't a game. There's a real conflict going on. Leviathan sneezes. When he sneezes, it flashes forth light. Ancient people used to believe that lightning bolts were the result of Leviathan sneezing. Achoo! And his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. You know, when the sun is setting, there's that orange, you know, half circle. Those are the eyelids of Leviathan. First from its mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire fly out of its mouth, out of its nostrils come smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. Man, this is one nasty creature we're talking about. Its breath kindles coals and a flame comes out of its mouth. It's a fire-breathing dragon, folks. It counts iron as straw. It eats iron for breakfast. Uh, And bronze as rotten wood. Okay, now this is what all ancient people believed about Leviathan. God is reminding him about this. Um, because he wants to emphasize to Job that this is a formidable foe. Now, the emphasis is always that God can, in fact, uh, control Leviathan. Uh, It's not out of control, but the battle is nevertheless real. And Job, unless you think you can do better than me, don't go throwing accusations about the way I run the universe. He says this about Leviathan, This cosmic beast fears nothing. It cannot be captured or domesticated. Even the gods, and that's their word for angels, are overwhelmed by the sight of it, and no one under heaven can confront it or be safe. In other words, this is a formidable creature here, Job. I've got a war on my hands, and until you walk a mile in my shoes and do what I do, don't go accusing me of injustice. You don't know. There's a war going on, and you don't know most things about it. 
You can't, you can't uh, uh, tame Leviathan. It's way beyond your control. And so don't be so quick to be throwing accusations about me when you don't know what you're talking about. We're in the middle of a war, and the war goes way beyond our knowledge to comprehend it. You see this very clearly in the book of Daniel. I, I, I want to turn now just to the book of Daniel very briefly. It's a fascinating thing here. Daniel is praying. It says this, I had eaten no rich food, no meat, nor wine had entered my mouth. This was a partial fast. And I had not anointed myself at all for a full three weeks. In other words, folks, Daniel was doing the variables. Daniel was praying right, okay? He's seeking God's face. But for 21 days, he hears nothing. Now, I can picture Job saying, oh, it must be God's fault. I can picture Job's friends saying, well, you know, it must be Daniel's fault. He must not have enough faith. But in fact, as we saw in the book of Job, we see now in Daniel, it was neither. After a while, an angel shows up and the angel says to Daniel, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. In other words, Daniel, God is good all the time. He hears your prayer. He dispatched me to answer this prayer, but something got in the way. Don't fear. God, God heard. God knows you, okay? But there's other variables at work here. Here's what they are. He says, I was dispatched, but the prince, of per- the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. The, kingdom of, uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia is a spiritual entity, apparently, who's over Persia. And he's an evil entity. The Bible talks about uh, how there are angels of various ranks, dominions, authorities, powers, rules, demons. There's, there's different ranks, just like there is on the physical realm. And one of these powers, a high-ranking power, is over Persia. It's got a stronghold over Persia. There are strongholds over nations. I'm convinced there's a stronghold over America, which is, hinders the, infl- the, the flow of God's supernatural power in bringing about healings of that sort. This prince of Persia interfered with God's answer to prayer. He's got say-so just like people do. The prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Okay, so there's a battle going on here. That Michael comes and relieves him of his duty so he can now finally get free and go and talk to Daniel. And see, if that seems odd to you, it's probably because you're not used to thinking about the spiritual realm like we think about things in the physical realm. But the Bible assumes that they're very much alike. Battles go on up there just like they go on down here. And the same sort of principles are, are involved. It's just that that's a higher level, invisible kind of a battle. So he gets relieved and comes down here. And then he said, now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I am through with him, the prince of Greece will come. Now I've got another principality in power in this thing. But I'm to tell you what is inscribed in the book of life. I've got to go, though, because there's no one with me who contends against these princes, both the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, except Michael, your prince. Michael was was in charge of all of Israel. Now, see, this is just weird stuff. Uh, it, it's strange stuff. Let me bring out a couple of points. We could preach on this one for a couple hours, but but let's, let's, let's try to be focused here. Number one, it tells you that Job and Job's friends would be both wrong in this instance. It wasn't about Daniel's lack of faith, and it wasn't about God's will. God willed to answer it. Daniel had the faith to receive the answer. But there are things that go on in the spiritual realm, the warfare with Leviathan, the, war, the warfare with the hostile seas, that influence what goes on on earth. That's the point of the book of Job. What goes on in the invisible realm about which we know very, very little affects life down here below. If Daniel hadn't been given a perspective, a, a view of what was going on behind the scenes, he never would have known why it took 21 days. He never would have known that. Only because God revealed to him, this angel revealed to him, a warfare that was going on in the heavenly realms, did he have an understanding of why it took 21 days. What we've got to learn from that is this. Like Job, we've got to be very hesitant to say that we know what's going on in this world because we're in the middle of this vast, infinitely complex war. And we see, folks, less than the tip of the iceberg. We know a minuscule amount. God tells us what we need to know on an on-to-know basis, on a need-to-know basis. Uh, he, He tells us the role that we're to have in the war. But he doesn't tell us a lot, very much at all, about what's going on outside of our little domain in which we're to be doing war. He tells us to pray. He tells us how to pray. He gives us principles to pray. But we've got to be very, very careful about turning these into a magical formula that we think is going to you know, give us control to manipulate everything that happens in the world. It's much more complex than that. 
Things that go on in the spiritual realm affect things in this realm, even how God's will gets played out. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians, an interesting passage. Paul wanted to go to the Thessalonians to preach. He says, where he wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, wanted to come to you time and time again. But Satan blocked our way. Now, we, we can assume that Paul was praying to go to Thess- Thessalonica, uh, maybe fasting to go to Thessalonica, maybe he had other people praying to go to Thessalonica, and yet he didn't get there. Why? Because it was God's will? No. But because Satan, who's got genuine say-so, and he can use it as he wishes, just like parents can, against God's will, use their say-so against their kids, so also this high-ranking dominion and authority can use his say-so against God's purposes. And in this case, it was successful. We have to understand that in a world where we've got multitudes of free agents, sometimes God's will is not done. That's what sin is. The Bible continually talks about people resisting God's will and about angels rebelling against God's will. It says in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees thwarted God's will for their life by refusing to hear John the Baptist. They thwart God's will. Why? Because they have to say so to do that. Things that go on in the spiritual realm affect what goes on down here. And this, folks, is why. This is why, this is why we need faith and fortitude if we're going to be kingdom warriors. Uh, it is hard, sometimes very tiring, to pray and to work for the kingdom and to sacrifice for the kingdom when you don't always see the, the direct result of what you're doing. It's hard to live in a world of ambiguity. This is why most people, or at least a lot of Christians, default to the simplistic answers. We don't like to know what that we don't know. We want to think we do know. So we grab onto this simple answer or that simple answer. But you've got to be very careful because you can indict other people, harm other people, and your own faith can crash against the rock of reality when you're holding on to a simplistic theology. It's hard to live and, and, to, and to pray in a world that is as complex and as war-torn as this one, but that is what we're called to do. Here's a diagram that kind of, I think, illustrates the situation that we're in. We're called to pray. We know that it does a lot of good. The Bible tells us that it does a lot of good. It tells us how to pray. We do the variables. That's what's within our control. And the only thing we can do is what's within our control. And we see the outcome. We see what happens in this world. But what we don't often see is how our prayer makes a difference in what comes out. And, and the results uh, of, of uh, this world. We, we, it's like a black box. We know what comes in, we know what goes out, but we don't see what goes on in, in, in the middle. We're living in the middle of a war zone. And it's hard. This is just the challenge. This is, I think, the greatest challenge in prayer. I'm an American. Most of you are Americans. I like to be able to push the microwave button and see it work. Turn the lights with it works. I like to see the cause and effect. I like to be in control. Unfortunately, when it comes to living in the kingdom, I'm not in control. I don't control all the variables. God tells me what I'm supposed to do. I got a little purview of that, and I just got to say, okay, I'll do it. But I don't get to see, often anyways, a direct cause and effect relationship between what I do. And it's hard to keep on doing it when you don't see that. It takes fortitude and it takes faith in a complex war zone. The point of the book of Job is to say it's very complex and there's a war going on. The point of the book of Daniel is to say it's very complex and there's a war going on, so we've got to avoid simplistic answers. Let me leave you with five, very quickly, five quick principles about how to live in a war zone, how to have faith in a war zone, things that we can hang on to. Number one, and this to me is the center of the center of the center of the center, folks. I live with the confidence that God is good all the time. God does not like evil. Uh, he, the Bible says he's, he's too holy to even look upon evil. He certainly doesn't bring it about. God's character is good all the time. All the time God is good. God is good all the time. Uh, all the time God is good. Land that in. Lock that in. The only way you can lock that in. You can't infer from looking at the world around you because the world's a war zone. Don't interpret what God is like on the basis of how good things are going for you because when things are not going good, you're going to use that to interpret God too and all of a sudden God doesn't look so nice. That's what Job did. We are to lock this in, that our ultimate final definition of who God is is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Jesus Christ is the definitive revelation of God. That's got to be the starting and end of everything we think about God. Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then ask, show us the Father? Don't go looking over here, over there, or, or to the fortunes or misfortunes of your life to try to understand what God is like. God is like me and I die on the cross for you. That's what you need to know about God. He's not only good, He's beautiful, He's lovely, He's wonderful, He's just, He's marvelous, praise God. But you only get that. Hebrews says this, in the middle of persecution, talking to Christians who are having their kids fed to lions, the author says this, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Folks, in the war zone, I don't know much of anything, neither do you. I only got four pounds to work with, and even that doesn't work that good. But you know what? I know this. I know Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. Amen? I'm going to fix my eyes upon Jesus Christ and I will say God is good. God is loving. God is kind. God is, is just. Praise God. God died for my sins. It's so important in the middle of the war zone that we resolve this. Fix your eyes on Jesus and enter into worship. Uh, see Him high and lifted up. See Him in all of His glory. Picture Him in His radiance. Picture Him in His beauty. Let Him love you in the midst of the war zone. This war zone is tough. It really is tough. Let's be honest with it. It is tough. In the middle of it, the, the, the most refreshing, strengthening thing you can do is to sit in the presence of God and let His love roll over you like a crashing wave, like a mighty sea that brings healing in your soul, relief to the Spirit, praise God, strength your spiritual arms. See Him high and lifted up in all of His glory. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Don't interpret what God is like on the basis of your experience. Interpret what God is like on the basis of Jesus Christ in spite of your experience. His experience is very ambiguous. Secondly, know this. God is good. He's on your side as you fight evil. Number two, prayer is effective. It is effective. You see, I have got very good reasons for believing that the Bible is the Word of God. I, I, I've searched this out. I am convinced Jesus Christ is Lord and the Bible is the Word of God. So I'm settled on that. Now the Bible tells me that prayer is effective. So I believe it is effective. But I don't always see how it is effective. I can't guarantee the results of my prayer. I know that the universe is, is bigger than me and the war zone goes far beyond what I can understand. But I'm still going to believe that prayer is effective whether I see the outcome of prayer or not. And that's not a, a dip, putting my head in the sand. I've got good reasons for believing the Bible is true. And now I understand why I can't always see the results of my prayer. So I'm going to keep on praying. When I see the results, I'm going to keep on praying. When I don't see the results, I'm going to keep on praying until God relieves me of that prayer, praise God. Our faith is based on the Word of God, not on the basis of our experience. Know that prayer is effective. James 5, it accomplishes much. Every prayer you pray, you've got to know it's not wasted. When I pray for a stranger on the street, when I'm praying for a, bless, for a person who I feel like judging, when, I, when I'm praying for my family, I don't know how exactly it's going to fit, it, fit into the mix of variables, but I do know this, it, it, it's effective. It's, it's accomplishing much. It's furthering the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. You know, sometimes, sometimes we think that prayer isn't effective at all. We don't see the results that we're looking for. But I wonder what would happen if we just stopped praying. <laughs> You know, I know this, that even when I pray for my family, even when things seem like they're going downhill and there's struggles going on, it would be worse if I wasn't praying. Praise God. So pray with persistence. Faith is effective. Number three, very important, accept I don't know. Just accept it. I don't know why we have such trouble as evangelicals. We think that because we've got a little bit of truth, we have to have all the truth, so we can never say I don't know. So we come up with answers, and the answers are always simplistic because our brain is much smaller than the problem. I don't know. It's okay to do that. Some people don't pray with other people because they're afraid, like, what happens if they don't get healed? Now we've got to say it's either God's will or their fault. And they want to avoid that awkwardness so they don't pray. No. Pray for the sick. Pray for families. Pray, you know, however God leads you to pray. And when you don't see the results of it, you go, I don't know. Everyone say, I don't know. You don't know. You're a human being. You're small. It's a fallen world, you know, and you can't expect to know all this stuff. That's the point of the book of Job. That's the lesson from Daniel. We don't know. So simply say, I don't know. And, and, and rest in that. It's frustrating. I know it's frustrating. There's some, sometimes you wonder, God, why don't you just tell us? I don't know. <laughs> Number four, be strengthened by God and persist. Be strengthened. You know, here's what I know is that I, I get tired sometimes. You get tired? 
You get tired. You pray and pray and pray and it doesn't happen. You, you, you work, you believe, you, you go forward and it doesn't happen. And you know, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard. In fact, in the flesh, it's impossible to do that. One of the things that I find so refreshing is that when the angel showed up to Daniel, the first thing he did was he touched Daniel and it says he strengthened Daniel. If you're ever going to be the kingdom warrior that God wants us to be, you're going to need strength from God. To persist in a world of ambiguity and the war zone takes strength. To go on when you don't see the answer to prayer takes strength, more strength than what you've got. Let the Lord touch you. Let the Lord strengthen you. It gets so fatiguing. Let's just be out loud about that. To, to keep on going on and on when you don't see the answer. But the Lord can strengthen you. Receive His strength. Bask in His love. See Him high and lifted up. And let that be your, your, your fuel. And the fifth point, and I close with this, is simply this. Keep an eternal perspective. Keep an eternal perspective. We're in a war zone time now, folks, but the war zone is not eternal. Praise God. Uh, Paul has the gall to say this. I consider the present sufferings of this present age to be not worthy to be compared to the glory which God has in store for those who love Him. You know, and when I think about some of the, some of the, the nightmares that have gone on in this life, all I can say is, God, if, you're, if I'm going to take you at your word, heaven's got to be pretty good. Uh, you know, to, not, to, to break even is going to be an amazing thing as far as I can see. You know, but you're saying that's not only better, but it's incomparably better. Praise God. And I, for one, can't wait for that. You know, I, I, I just, I really sometimes, I love life. I love life. I'll live it to the fullest. I, I, I have joy, okay? I, I walk in that. But the war gets tiring. And I'm sick and tired of the war. And I'm sick and tired of the evil. I'm sick and tired of the things that plague people. I'm sick and tired of the grief that people have got to go through. I'm sick and tired of the struggles. But the early Christians, I want to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, a lot of American Christians, we're too busy making, trying to make this into a heaven. And, and so we don't even long for the Lord's coming. But this isn't heaven. This is war. There's a lot of hell going on. I can't wait for heaven to happen. Hallelujah. Amen. The promise of all promises in the Word of God is that God wins in the end. God wins in the end. In the end, Leviathan slaughtered. The sea is no more, praise God. And when that happens, the Bible tells us, then God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then things will be set straight. Then the war will come to an end. Then there will be no more blindness, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, no more anything, praise God. We'll live and reign in the beauty and the love of God's grace and His, His peace. And His healing will be all around, praise God. Then we'll be as God always wanted the creation to be. Now there's the war zone. And just knowing that hope, hanging on to that hope, keeping that vision, see it, live it, breathe it. When you have that, then even in the ambiguity, arbitrariness of life, you can handle it because you know it's not permanent. Even death, you can handle it. We still should come against it. It's not God's ideal. He wants to be glorified by, by healing but when that doesn't happen, for the believer now, it's not the end of the world. Because that was just a transition, praise God. And so even that doesn't, nothing has ultimate bad news, it has good news. It doesn't mean that everything's positive, let's not go la-la land. But it puts it in perspective and you can now have a peace. You can have a peace that passes understanding, praise God.